You're listening to Sorry, What Was the Question with me, Alex Campbell. I'm a therapist, coach and educator. I also have ADHD. In fact, I was one of the first in the UK to be diagnosed. My experience having ADHD is complex, confusing and often hilarious. It can also be quite isolating. That's why I created this podcast, to chat with other people with ADHD, along with their family, friends and colleagues. So join us. I hope that together we'll feel less isolated, better understood and more connected. Hello, wonderfully diverse friends. How are you? How's your week been? I hope wherever you are, it's going well. Well, since launching the first couple of episodes, I've moved house, so it's pushed me back a little bit getting this next episode out, and I apologise for that. But I want to say thank you for all the amazing feedback I've received so far. People have been reaching out from all over the world, from places like the United States, New Zealand, Belgium, France, Finland, and the list goes on. I've not had a chance to get back to you all, but I will do my best. I have a little cheeky plug to begin with. It'd be great if you could rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps to get the show going, and it also encourages others to give it a listen too. Also, if you're not yet following, please do follow the show on Instagram at ADHDpodcast.fm as well as Twitter at ADHDpodcast underscore FM. When you're young, that is such a difficult thing just to be with that like, I'm just functioning so differently from other people. And the only way I could deal with it was to, to kind of turn it into this like novelty that was interesting and that was fun and that, you know, I needed to kind of stand out for something. So I built this narrative about being like this almost superhuman. I didn't sleep and I I still struggle with insomnia. So that really fed this idea that I was this superhuman. You know, I I didn't need to sleep. I was just high, high functioning. And and that that was a story that I stuck to in order to feel okay about myself. That was Carly Minsky, my guest on today's episode. She's a journalist and writer focusing on technology and science. She's written for the likes of the Financial Times, Vice and Metro. She's a twin and a besotted owner of rescue dog Teddy, who makes an appearance in the interview today. Carly's also a serial hobbyist, and she considers herself to be neurodivergent, having been diagnosed with ADHD in her early 20s. Later on in the episode, we'll welcome in her partner, Josh Moritz, who's an integrative psychotherapist and counsellor working in private practice. And then prior to training as a therapist, he worked as a youth worker in various roles within the Jewish community. He's also the proud dog owner of Teddy. He's a guitarist and a football obsessive, with Manchester United being his chosen poison. Now, I know Josh fairly well, as we did our psychotherapy training together at the Minster Centre. This interview is a little longer today, so I apologise to those of you who saw the length of it and found it a bit daunting. And to all my fellow ADHDers, take a break if your mind starts to wander, because it is worth listening to all the way through, particularly towards the end when Carly surprises me with a question. Anyway, it was really hard to cut it down from the hour and a half I spent with them. I have very little words, but simply... I left challenged and changed after hearing Carly's story and how she and Josh live out their relationship. It was a privilege to listen to them both. I hope you feel the same. So Carly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Where does your story with ADHD begin? Uh, that's It's hard to pinpoint the beginning because uh, looking back, it definitely begins you know, right from baby when I had trouble sleeping and apparently I was um kind of never sitting still I was always just kicking you know when I was like a toddler and um always moving um but I guess I didn't have the like frame of reference to uh to talk about ADHD until I was older before I was diagnosed though so when I was at secondary school I was doing fairly well in terms of grades but I was absolutely the class clown and was always in trouble. I was generally responsible for um, the whole class getting rearranged seating because I wouldn't stop playing games and talking. Um, And uh, it was a running joke between not just my friends, but also teachers about, you know, I would, I could do things very quickly and I could get good grades, but my attention span was just really, really small. At some point, I must have, I don't remember why, but I must have started to feel a little bit worried about that or insecure um, because I asked my parents if I could get assessed um, for ADHD. I said, 
um, I basically said that I'd noticed that there was something very different about, you know, my the way I function. Um, I don't think I put it like that because I was a stroppy teenager. <laughs> um, but um, even though I think I, I was feeling quite insecure about it, I think the the primary kind of trigger for me ha- bringing that up was mm. probably that I had a twin sister who um, was generally getting assessed for like learning difficulties and there's often a tension between twins, especially twins who are in the same school, um, where if someone is getting a lot of attention for something or a lot of support, um, it can feel quite unfair. Mm. And perhaps that's what led me to kind of actually notice the ways in which I was struggling and struggling in quite an invisible way. Um, at the time, it was really dismissed. Um, oh. And... Um, seen as me just being difficult and you know trying to cause a problem trying to stand out take attention away from my sister um mm. but I since know that that is very common with women with high functioning women who are doing fairly well that it's not until a crisis point that the things you struggle with get taken seriously because I think and this isn't just for women, but I think the way ADHD is often understood, particularly by people outside of the kind of psychiatry, psychology sphere, is that it's like bad behaviour. You know, it's just, it's either like a personality quirk or it's little boys who are hyper and can't sit still, you know, and, and can't perform that well at school. I think a lot of people, particularly if they get diagnosed fairly late in life, kind of internalise that as like, I'm just not very good at those things, those normal everyday things like sitting still, like focusing, like not interrupting people. Um, mm. And for me, it really did get to a crisis point before mm. Mm. I really got help. One of the things you're saying st- striking me is about the experience of on the outside, it's quote unquote bad behaviour, but your emotional experience is not that I'm misbehaving or there's like a disconnect. Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think ADHD is not, or the experience of having ADHD is not just attention deficit or hyperactivity or hyperfocus. There's a lot of um, other experiences like impulsivity, um, like Mm. uh, not being able to organise yourself. It it, It was those things rather than the attention side of things that I felt like would just be on my reach. Um, Particularly things like self-control, you know, not just as soon as I had a thought or an idea, just needing to do it. Mm. Um, And to people around me, it was like, in some way I must have been just not caring about the consequences. Right. Um, So that's what other people were thinking about. Yeah. Actually, your experience was quite different yeah but I think I didn't know whether everybody struggled with self-control or whether it was just me Mm -hmm. um all I could use to try and understand that was how people behaved externally um and I think that does reinforce this idea that it's it's bad behavior because you only get to assess the behavior you Mm. don't get to understand the inner experiences Mm. um and I think that did cause me quite a lot of like emotional turmoil and a lot of kind of value judgments of myself, of other people are seemingly finding life quite easy. Um, And so there's something dysfunctional about me, about, you know, what goes on in my inner world, Mm. but not having a name to put to that or or any kind of, I couldn't like forgive myself for the Uh, things I struggled with. So... It sounds to me that you're quite hard on yourself about this experience. Yeah, definitely. And I, but I, I think other people were too. Mm. The, that gap in understanding of, of what what you're experiencing as a challenge and how you're behaving um, kind of allows a lot of judgment both from yourself but also from other people. Even now, I think I, I do have a um, reputation for being quite unreliable quite disorganized you know I'm, I'm very likely to double book them and not realize yeah. or um decide you know last minute that I don't want to do something or I do want to do something 
I now can see a lot of these behaviors in the context of ADHD. But for such a long time, I didn't have that language. I didn't have that understanding of myself either. Mm. You mentioned impulsivity, which is part of the ADHD experience. It's not one that's often talked about, but it can be a really challenging thing when you you are very impulsive or you have these moments of like, some people call it like a bit of a manic phase. Mm-hmm. Or what was that like for you? Um, I, I didn't recognise it until it got out of control, to be honest. I I was at a point where I'd wake up every day and think, I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do today and that is pretty scary. Wow. And I, I had quite a conscious experience at that time of having kind of competing voices almost mm-hmm. where one would say, you know, don't don't have another drink. Like, you don't need to. Um, or not even you don't need to, you don't want to. And then I would still almost watch myself getting more and more intoxicated, even, you know, don't stay up all night partying, <laughs> don't have sex with this person, don't, you know, this was when I was a postgraduate, I was about 22, and I I just felt in all aspects of my life that I, I wasn't actually making kind of intentional decisions, I was just succumbing to whims and impulses, and um, and before I think I kind of owned that um and turned it into this like cool trait that I was like fun and impulsive I'd always be up for partying you know I'd be the last one up I'd, but then I'd still like you know go to all my classes that I needed to I think it was my way of dealing with it was to try and own it and try and turn it into something that would like set me apart in a positive way mm-hmm. um, which is something that I'm currently kind of trying to unpick a bit in therapy myself it wasn't until I really felt like I'm just scared of what I'm going to do every single day, every moment of the day. And I was dealing with that as well as the the kind of shame and regret and the judgment because I felt every day I was doing things that I thought were stupid and um, I wished I hadn't done. Mm. You know, and that cumulative, you know, feeling of like, I'm just fucking everything up all the time. Um, that led me to actually decide I'm not okay. Um, and, I, and I wasn't necessarily thinking about ADHD. I was just thinking, like, I'm out of control. Like, I'm not happy. So I saw a psychiatrist. Coincidentally, he deals a lot with adult ADHD. And at first, so he, did, he didn't mention it explicitly, but I since know that it was quite obvious to him that a lot of the things I was dealing with are associated with ADHD. Um, mm. He, I think he kind of informally did an ADHD assessment. At the time, I, I kind of inaccurately gave responses that didn't meet the ADHD criteria. So quest- particularly questions about um, my experience as a child and teenager. You know, like, was I in trouble at school? It's like, nope, <laughs> I did really well at school. You know, I really stuck to this narrative of like... Um, it's like I succeeded in spite of the stuff that was going on for me internally, in spite of the mm. challenges that I had. Um, mm. So I, I didn't let him into the challenges right. that had always been there. Um, and one of the criteria for ADHD, the behaviours or the symptoms generally don't start later in life. You might be diagnosed later in life, but it's very rare that they kind of suddenly appear. So when I presented my kind of adolescent life as like very easy and I didn't struggle with anything. Um, I didn't meet the criteria for a diagnosis and I was actually diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder at that time. Wow. And what was that like? So it just didn't feel right. Right. Um, I've since had the experience of having a diagnosis that really made sense. So I comparing it to that, you know, I, I felt so much relief when I was finally diagnosed with ADHD and I almost immediately did begin to kind of forgive myself for the things I'd been really hard on myself for. Wow. Um, and I didn't have that experience with the initial diagnosis. I I just felt like I'm not sure this quite captures what I'm going through. Mm. Um, mm. And I'd been prescribed medication and I deliberated about whether to take it and I didn't take it. And in my next appointment with my psychiatrist, I, I kind of said... I don't really know why I don't want to take this medication. Like, I'm not against taking medication for, you know, psychiatric issues. Um, 
but it just doesn't really feel right. Um, and he agreed actually and said, you know, I'm not sure the diagnosis is right. Um, he got my mum in to an appointment and said that he wanted to do um, an assessment, which is quite common, I think, um, getting an external perspective on what I was like as a child and teenager. So he asked my mum the questions. And the same questions the that he asked questions you. Okay. About what I'd, um, what I'd been like at school and what I'd been like as a child. Um, and obviously all the answers displayed um, my uh, my impulsivity, my attention deficit, mm. um, and lots of other other things that really stood out as ADHD mm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I ask you what it was about not telling him the truth the first time, which then obviously led to a misdiagnosis mm. of bipolar? What was what was that about for you? Not telling him. I think I, I wasn't letting myself really understand what had been going on for me for such a long time. Like, it wasn't just him I, I didn't tell. I had convinced myself and everyone that, yes, I was different, you know, what what I would now refer to as, you know, neurodivergent. Yeah, um, yeah. When you're young, that is such a difficult thing just to be with, that, like, I'm just functioning so differently from other people. And the only way I could deal with it was to to kind of turn it into this like novelty that was interesting and that was fun and that you know I needed to kind of stand out for something so I built this narrative about being like this almost superhuman I didn't sleep and I, I still struggle with insomnia and um, so that really fed this idea that I was this superhuman you know I, I didn't need to sleep I was just high high functioning and and that that was a story that I stuck to in order to feel okay about myself mm, <laughs> um, yeah and I just had never questioned that narrative and when he did you know I, th- I don't think the initial reaction is generally like okay I'm gonna drop the act <laughs> um you know that's yeah. it doesn't go that quickly <laughs> exactly it's quite deeply ingrained at that point because mm. I was 22 but it when I did with my mum kind of start to reveal what I'd really been going through, it was the very first step to alleviating some of that shame. And it was the shame, I think, that was driving this, like, false narrative that I'd kind of built around myself. That's interesting. So you're able to identify here a feeling that was essentially blocking you from living authentically. Mm -hmm. So since then, you know, you've talked about the diagnosis being a relief and that things started to shift for you. But just since that point mm. can you share a little bit about that yeah, particularly sure. around the you trying to be more honest with yourself yeah. as much as the world around you I I didn't share my diagnosis with really anyone I distinctly remember fairly soon after I was diagnosed and I was still in academia at that point even now I think that people do kind of casually joke like oh I must have ADHD and and I would hear that from you know like friends around me because we were all together in the library you know so there's quite a direct comparison into like how long someone can sit still and read. And um, so I'd hear those kind of comments. How I remember that, how did that yeah, those I, comments? I, it was like really painful. Oh. But I also felt like so much shame that I couldn't. I think now I would probably say, oh, I, I actually do have ADHD. But at that time, it just felt like I didn't have the the experience of having those conversations about about ADHD, about what it the impact it had on me and it, I didn't I just didn't understand it enough myself mm. um and I think it's taken a good 10 years which it has been now and also unfortunately probably experiences where I felt very confronted by the way that my ADHD um does present barriers or maybe that's the wrong way to put it uh, the environment I'm in presents barriers for me because I have ADHD mm. um and it's it's been those experiences that have actually given me that like deeper understanding of how the world is set up for neurotypical people. Yeah. Um, and that's allowed me to uh, kind of be more open about having ADHD and about the challenges without feeling like I'm just a dysfunctional person. Yeah. Sometimes when someone asks you, so what's it like to have ADHD or what is ADHD? It's actually quite hard mm. to uh, answer that question clearly, at least in a way that maybe someone who doesn't have ADHD 
will understand because it's it's a diagnosis that's full of paradoxes mm. and full of things that on the surface don't really make a lot of sense but in our minds they do but actually speaking it is cam- I don't know yeah does that make sense it's- yeah no it does and and it's that um issues like prioritization you know what mm. okay what is the most urgent thing or or you know what order should I do things in um w- w- wonderful Teddy is with us um in this recording today by <laughs> the, the way listeners the, the dog is working up that we're sitting so and quietly he has next decided to- he needs attention from Alex <laughs> 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 oh no, he, he's um, he's going for it. He's off. So then, okay, do I have time to do this thing? So a good example is yesterday, mm. I went to the theatre for the first time in a long time, which was lovely. But in the morning, I decided um, I definitely had to make something with cabbage for lunch. And I should have known how long it would take because I made the exact same dish the night before um, and had still had some leftover vegetables. But nonetheless, I didn't I didn't go through that process in my mind of like, okay, what time do I have to leave? How long does this take? Is this a priority? Do I need to cook this right now? Do I have time to cook this evening instead? Um, instead, I went through the whole process, ended up just about um, finishing cooking as I had to leave, so I couldn't eat. So I ended up at the theatre at 1.30, having not eaten lunch, but having cooked something that I couldn't eat because I didn't have time. While it resonates with people who have ADHD, from the outside, it just looks like well, that was a bit of a silly thing to do. You know, it's, but, yeah. but, but that's what everything, you know, every time I try and decide, okay, what should I do right now? What should I do later? Which is absolutely fundamental to, you know, to your experience of like those really small decisions about mm. how you spend your time. What I'm hearing as well is that you're kind of quite eloquently describing two things that I think impact us, which is, you know our executive functioning mm-hmm. which is this you know the ability to 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 make decisions and to to to, to carry them out um to decide um and then time blindness mm-hmm. you know the whole idea of like time can just get away with you like it's it someone described to me as like time is like now and not now yeah so if you say i'm leaving in an mm-hmm. hour it might as well be next year right <laughs> because it's not now yes. you know yeah. so since which you links think- to kind of that to instant gratification, which is also important for people with ADHD, that mm. having long-term goals or long-term incentives doesn't really work. We we need to be able to realise that incentive or achieve some goal, even if it's an artificial goal. So, you know, if, if there's a long project, setting yourself, like, much smaller-term goals. And, and I've even done things like... Um, I, I've struggled with um, kind of habits that I've tried to beat before. Right. Um, and there's no obvious like short-term goal because it's just about, you know, trying to minimise the behaviour. Um, and even something as simple as like I made a chart and like every day I just like give myself a little sticker or something, mm. you know, and, and that's... A dopamine reward. Exactly, exactly. That's a good way to put it. it. It is that like instant dopamine hit. I really like your... Um, the way you described kind of timelineness because... For me, I'm actually always aware of how much time has gone. I um, sometimes like to play a game where be like, let me guess the time. I bet I can tell you, um, providing I knew the start time, you know, like right. if we've you know, been engaged in activity, but like, I bet I can tell you exactly how long we've been there. And I'm always quite close, which surprises people because I'm late for everything. So people think I don't have a sense of time, mm. but I do have a very strong sense. So I always know that I'm late, but I haven't managed to prioritise that into my decision-making. Right. So it's that. I'm just, I'm in now. I'm not thinking about the consequences for later. And maybe that's actually, that's such a a helpful way of actually describing this experience, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But actually the way you've just described that for me is actually quite helpful. It's like, I know I'm doing this Mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And that's, I think that's actually one of the infuriating things for people who don't have it. It's like, Mm -hmm. if you know, then why don't you do something different? And that's always a bit where you're like, it's not as simple as just making it logical in that way. Because I like what I say to people is like, you have to understand that even if I have an awareness, there is also a neurological process happening, Mm -hmm. which is disabling me from making a decision that might be a better one Mm -hmm. I might sometimes do it but I'm not going to be able to just learn from this and it's going to be you know and I think that's the hard thing isn't it I think as you say the fact that you can sometimes do it and it's often very context dependent Mm. um 
also causes some problems because people will see you, let's say, being able to, you know, sit and do a task because actually, you know, it's very, very engaging. So it's, you know, it's hitting some of the stuff that, um, you know, really releases dopamine or or whatever it is. Mm. Um, but then they see you not being able to do that in a different context or because there are lots of distractions around or because your day has been chaotic and then you can't actually get into that mind frame. Um, and mm. and it's that inconsistency um, yeah. that is kind of hard to justify. Yeah, um, and I it, agree. it's a shame that we feel, or I feel like I have to justify it, but I do. Yeah, it might be a good point to bring Josh in actually about. Yeah, um, yeah, because I saw Josh nodding um, <laughs> <laughs> when we were were talking about um, you know people seeing us do it sometimes and saying you're aware of it. And Josh has a lot of experience of. Um, particularly seeing me hyper-focus um, mm. and unable to stop doing something and thinking like it's, you know, it's one in the morning and Josh is already in bed and he's calling out to me like, you know, it's one in the morning. And it's funny going back to that timeline thing because I don't, I wonder whether Josh is, when you remind me of the time, do you think I don't know what time it is? Hi, I'm Josh. <laughs> um, Welcome, Josh. <laughs> And it's really interesting you ask me that now. I think, I think I don't think you know what time it is. Mm. Or I wonder if it's sort of a practice of, you know, an assumption that you're just distracted and in a completely different world Mm. that you've lost. And I guess I wonder that comes from, very curiously comes from a neurotypical Mm. viewpoint that my experience of being distracted and losing the sense of time is this kind of way and Mm. I'm just seeing some external behavior that kind of mirrors that Mm. but you know being asked it now must must be a completely different experience Mm. I can't even imagine Mm. yeah yeah and I I definitely have that capacity to kind of be in another world and daydream and that's you know another side of, of ADHD that I can almost go into a trance but when I'm hyper-focused, that's not what's happening. That is, what's happening there is that it is quite a conscious choice um, Mm. or a kind of prioritization of the task at hand. Uh, And it's it's a kind of devaluing of the consequences, I guess, of like, I'm going to be exhausted. Mm. Um, Right. So so correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like Josh is aware and maybe Josh might be more also aware of consequences to mm. say not going to bed. Mm-hmm. I'm very and, aware of consequences. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say a bit more about that? So I think I think this it's only from the way that my mind works, which right. is you know, and I'm, I'm also I'm not particularly a night owl. So you know, I'm I've, I've kind of always grown up as sort of a going to bed quite early sort of person. But yeah, I, I think I um that is my way of experiencing the world, and mm. it can be kind of hard to see. Um, what appears to be almost quite like um, explicit self sabotage, you know, that's yeah. that's what I it comes you were across. Say, like. like self destructive, or yeah, and and what you know, just mm. observing the conversation as it's been so far, um, it just sounds like that is, you know, very much resonating with what you've articulated from people saying how can you just not do that then if you know that you're going to be exhausted the next day? And, mm. you know, the thing I've really learned is that it doesn't even help for me to say it's 1am, you know, or, you know, there there really isn't, you know, those things are not really getting to the kind of heart of what Carly must be going through. It's, 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 mm. it's just sort of, mm. I, I know, I think it's a, a brick wall essentially yeah. from my, from my point of view. I think it's, it, I think it's really important that you describe it as self-sabotage because I think that does touch on what feels like so frustrating that mm. I'm doing this to myself <laughs> um, and I'm you know quite consciously doing something that I foreseeably am going to you know some of the consequences of and when Josh with absolutely good intentions tries to help and support me and, and highlight that what I'm doing is self-sabotage, which you I don't think you do explicitly until this conversation. Mm. But that is what's going on when you say, mm. you should know 
it's late. Um, what that does is kind of bring up a lot of that shame of like, right. it's been witnessed okay. that the way that I'm harming myself in a totally illogical way has been seen. And like, I think shame is quite a trigger for me yeah. um, that I will actually continue with the destructive behaviour or mm-hmm. with the things that don't make sense. I th- one yeah. thing I would add, though, is that I wonder if this kind of sets up, it can set up a sort of slightly unhealthy power dynamic between kind of neurotypical and neurodivergent people, you know, sort of yeah. the idea that I, mean? yeah, the idea that I know what's best because, for Carly because, you're because I'm a neurotypical person that must only think logically. I know, I guess I, you know, I experienced a ton of dysfunction myself or a ton of illogical. I mean, we look at our mm. kitchen arguments every week. <laughs> um, I'm the illogical one. Right. And that mm-hmm. putting yeah. things in, in places where, you know, they shouldn't be. Um, Are you saying, Josh, here that, because we've, we've touched on shame, where I say we touched on, we talked a lot about shame mm-hmm. um, and just how, you know, disabling shame can be in, mm-hmm. all, in all contexts, not just maybe imagine ADHD, but uh, do you not feel quite so shameful about your dysfunction? Or is there a difference that you're noticing about your, whatever it is that might not be logical, might not be rational? I guess but... mine is more, I, I also wonder there's something about gender involved as well um you know just sort of like the profile of being a man and being able to be a bit mindless um Mm. and like how kind of like i'm aware of how carly and i are socialized differently Mm. um but i also wonder if there's sort of uh it's kind of taken for granted as human you know everyone's a bit you know um distracted at times Mm. you know procrastination to an extent Mm. exists within everyone it feels to me and i'd like to know if if you feel the same that you don't beat yourself up as much for your like for instance procrastination i i do okay but not i don't know if i do it i don't know if it's as from this conversation i imagine your experience of shame with that touches something i feel i really like have given myself a hard time i feel like i'm a total failure because i have not spent these three hours the way I intended to and often I see you needing downtime I see you avoiding things um Mm -hmm. rather than doing them but I guess what I don't see it touching on something really really deep rooted for you about your dysfunction I guess Mm. yeah I think it I don't think it touches a deep shame in me I think that there are more obvious tools as well Mm -hmm. which are kind of out there or like yeah, you know, it's kind of in the camp of procrastination, and it's something that you can get better at and right. be in practice. That's mm. kind of how I view yeah. it. Rather, it doesn't. I touch. guess. It, I mean, the the other thing that I really wanted to pick up on is the the gender part of it, where you know, to start with, you're told, you know, well, well men can't multitask, but women can, um, and then having the experience of people being very surprised at the ways in which you can't multitask, particularly because of your gender. Mm. Um, yeah. And and it being this, you know, very like, you know, not meant badly, but people will joke and be like, oh, you know, rare for a woman. And I think something like microaggressions, aren't there? Yeah, that? for sure. It's written, they cut away. Yeah. yeah. But I think that is something that um is really important to talk about with ADHD, is that it's often often boys being boys. That was um, my, that was my preconception before yeah. kind of being in a relationship with comedy, yeah. I think. And it actually if these things are male traits, what does that mean for me? Either I don't really have, you know, these challenges, mm. or if I do, they're just uh, kind of idiosyncratic to me. I can't even, I can't blame ADHD and I can't blame my gender. Or I am fitting far more into the male category than the female category. So it's it puts into question my identity as neurodivergent, as having an ADHD diagnosis and or my gender identity. Right. Um, and that's something that I think really goes hand in hand with my experience with ADHD is that mm. um, even in relationships, so I um, have always struggled to be in monogamous relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that, in fact, a big part of that is because I crave novelty. As much as, you know, you are always discovering things about someone in a relationship, there is a real sense in which you don't have these big new experiences the longer you've been with someone. Um, 
And there is a huge part of me that isn't fulfilled by a you know, very stable long-term relationship. Mm. Um, and my whole kind of romantic sexual life, that has unfortunately not been received well by a lot of people. Mm. Um, and it's been characterized as like, oh, you're an ice queen, you know? Um, oh, what a label. Yeah. And, and it's very much because of the expectation of like how women are in relationships and how men are in relationships. Yeah. And um, I, I can't separate that from the ways in which ADHD does manifest in myself. Mm. Josh, can I get you to input here? It's always been spoken about kind of from the start of us dating. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were friends for a long time before um, we've been together almost five years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at the beginning, there was always a dialogue about um, monogamy, non-monogamy. Um, I think we've explored facets of an open relationship at the beginning of our relationship, probably in the first few years. Um I think we still would define as open, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. I don't think we've had as many experiences of that in the recent years. Particularly um, not in the pandemic. Not in the pandemic. That's yeah. been a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. And I think that that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, my background as well as kind of in philosophy and psychotherapy as well. And that with that, yeah. you know, we trained together and there's kind of yeah. been, uh, before, you know, whilst we started dating, I was in the midst of my training. So that was bringing up for me a lot of like, curiosity just in general about mm. life and um um you know mm. questions around sexuality exploring that monog- monogamy non-monogamy I was listening to a lot of podcasts Dan Savage mainly mm. um which yeah. was, I was obsessed with for you know probably about a few years and Carly's very bored of me talking about it um so yeah it's been it's it's at the moment it's 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 sort of the premise of what our relationship sort of built mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. you know that it's um something that we continually or revisit or we'll talk mm-hmm. about have mm-hmm. a dialogue about it doesn't look one particular way as well yeah. you know we were having very intentional conversations mm-hmm. about what it would mean to have you know s- sexual experiences or romantic experiences with others either you know as a pair or as and I, I don't think we've ever landed on one thing yeah. it's just been something mm-hmm. that you know, it, the, the door isn't ever closed on something. It's always yeah. there to be spoken about. I think it really helped that while Josh and I both have quite different needs and desires in relationships, we're both, quite, and particularly Josh, I will say, is really um, open-minded and understanding of that difference. Um, right. I think it comes up against, and I think an important part of both of our upbringings as well as um, we're part of the Jewish community. And I think being part of any kind of religious community brings mm. its own preconceived norms as well. And um, what's expected and what's, what's expected, expected, especially, especially, but, you know, relationship models. Mm. Um, How most, have you guys navigated that then? Um, it's very challenging. And I think in particular, it's, um, you know, most of our friends are now married or with children and in very yeah. in monogamous um, setups. And it's, you know, our concepts of what family is is different. Mm. Um, and it is, to bring it back to, to ADHD, I mm. think um, there are many reasons why I don't intend to have my own biological children um, or non-biological children Mm. actually um but one reason is is absolutely because i i don't think um it would work for the way that i live the way that i have experiences and process information and and prioritize my time um Mm. and and that that reason in particular does come with a bit of sadness mm, of like I hear you. I mean the, the other reasons are more like it's actually not something I want <laughs> yeah um yeah but but feeling like I'm actually not sure it's something I could do and excel at and be happy with right I don't think I could raise children and part of that was, is like n- not trusting myself um yeah. you know that and I I'm, I am generally quite a confident person but it's in these life skills that I'm not confident because they feel like things that an adult just should really naturally be able to do. Wow. Should be able to keep a diary and should be able to prioritise time and should be able to not double book 
and should be able to uh, write a to-do list and remember to buy the things and remember to order my medication in time. Oh yeah. And I and how is it that I <laughs> that I can digest a really technical academic paper and turn it into like a, re- a really engaging article, something that takes so much brain power? but I feel like I just can't do normal everyday things. And actually, uh, we've mentioned the dog, <laughs> but mm. uh, I think it's been really good for, for me and, and for Josh too, to be able to look after another being. Um, yeah. And it's been challenging for sure, but it's also shown that it's not something that's absolutely impossible for me. Right. Can I ask a question about mm-hmm. Teddy, the, our dog? He's lying on the carpet <laughs> He's right so now. Because um, you were talking earlier about time. Um, I don't know. I was, I was just wondering about something about Teddy having very immediate needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how that goes alongside mm-hmm. your experience of ADHD. It's a really good point because I've actually said to other people of how healthy it is to spend time with a dog who is only present and it forces you to be so mindful and, mm. and you know, particularly when you're out and about with a dog. But for me, I guess it allows me to stop trying to fight my own mind yeah. um, and trying yeah. to really force myself into a way of thinking and a way of being um, that's really not natural to me. Um, so being with the dog... Um, and being like very present for you know the dog's immediate experience really lets me just you know live my own experience as well I love that that actually Mm -hmm. Teddy for you has become as a couple but also for you particularly Carly something that you can look after you can care Mm -hmm. for there's there's like a hope when you talked about that in your voice which I love yeah but also um he helps you engage with the here and now. Yeah, it's like an anchor in the present. Yeah. Before we finish, I I want to just kind of open up the floor to both of you. If there's anything that maybe we haven't talked about or something that you would love to share. I want to hear more from, from Josh, I think, about your experience of living with someone with ADHD and, and being in a relationship with someone with ADHD. I'm not sure I have a specific question, but... Um, I still think I'm learning. Mm. Um... I think, you know, my associations of ADHD played into the sort of s- stigmas of naughty boys. Um, I was even a youth worker and I think we did label boys with too much energy just as mm. they're probably a bit ADHD. Mm. Um, it like hurts. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just like even knowing what it is, is like mm. is is the thing that I'm still on a journey with. I certainly know. I see more living with Carly than I think others would. Mm. In particular, understanding it as having um, significant impact on mood, um, I think, is something that really isn't thought of as ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes sit in a very interesting place between. I think these societal stigmas, especially around, you know, everyday things, responsiveness, etiquette, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. think about that word. Yeah. And yeah. sort of yeah. can see myself... Socially accepted norms or... Yeah. Yeah. can see myself almost in a mediating place between those two places where mm-hmm. I'm aware wow. that something else is going on that somebody else doesn't know about. And also I'm aware of, you know, some, you know, sort of the environment that we're in. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really... Um, tense place mm. to be in. Do you have any examples that you're thinking of in particular? Because I, I think I know what, what you mean. I guess like I was thinking about the example of, but I don't know if you would count this, because it's also hard to differentiate between like what is ADHD and also what is just Carly <laughs> as a person. And, yeah, like, of course. And that's know, actually a really good point as well. Yeah. Um, well, you can't. It's part it's, of... It's sometimes not like a helpful thing to be, yeah. to just yeah. put it in an ADHD box. box. Yeah. yeah. Um, it feels guess, like convenient to do that, isn't yeah. it? Oh, that's just your ADHD. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how you feel about this example. But we were staying with my parents, um, and I was cooking. They'd like semi-manipulated me to making the maroncini one <laughs> evening, and Carly was took the dog to the park down the road, um, and then gave me a call, kind of frantically, um, 
that, that she found an injured bird and Nicole is like oh. a huge, you know, animal lover. And the bird was... Um, a baby. A baby and its leg was injured. Wing, Wing was injured. Um, and it was like a whole conversation. It was like the last night with my parents. My parents are quite kind of like, <laughs> you know, we don't see them very often up north. Um, and it was definitely kind of a dilemma of like, do we drive them an hour away to the nearest RSPCA place and miss dinner at the last dinner of my parents or, mm. um, and save this bird or do we do the more kind of socially etiquette thing of just leave, maybe just leaving the bird. Mm. And I know, I know, you know we had some honest conversations where I had to really say like, yeah, I, I think I would just leave the bird because I'm quite bound by kind of the etiquette. And mm. it was kind of, def- I don't know how you feel about that kind of being... Yeah is a challenge about prioritization and about impulse control, right? Like, as soon as I saw the bird, I already knew what I was going to do. And I would save the bird, find an RSP. You know, nothing else mattered. You know, this is going back to the, there's now and yeah, yeah, very narrow focus. You know, it's called hyper-focus for for a reason. Mm. I actually think it's a really good example of how ADHD and, like, social etiquette can kind of conflict yeah even something like you know far less dramatic is just not being able to wait my turn to speak and I know that I I can come off like really dominant and and I know that it it seems rude or it seems like you don't care exactly like I don't care and there is a tiny bit of me that I guess doesn't care about those norms right that's a really interesting point actually that Maybe you don't care about the norm. That doesn't mean you don't care about the person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, but I think sometimes people inter- interpret that yeah. behavior as you don't care about me or yeah. care about whatever this it is. This time that we had together. Or right. All. And actually that might not yeah. be the case. I think that is such a good point. And, you know, it goes back to the example that Josh said that it absolutely was not that I didn't value the last night that we had with your parents, even though my behavior probably did look like that. And yeah. And my behaviour when I don't reply to messages does look like I just don't care enough to to communicate with you. Um, and that is probably one of the like hardest things in kind of interpersonal relationships when you're not neurotypical. Like how to communicate that the way that, are, that people might be interpreting your behaviour does not reflect what's going on in me in the way that they think that same behaviour from them would reflect what's going on for them. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. One thing I just want to say to both of you is I've really appreciated your honesty because there have been some questions that you've actually asked of each other that I realised you haven't asked of each other, so you've also learned some things about yourself. Mm-hmm. But is there any final words before we finish? Maybe I'd like to hear a bit more from you. I've seen you during this conversation, you know, really nodding and like I can see in your body that you felt things. Um, and I just to wrap up, I'd love to hear like what's going on for you right now. Wow. That's amazing. Um, you're definitely the, the partner of someone who's a therapist. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's We're also be- sitting in a therapy room right now. Yeah. And I'm in the, and I'm in the therapist <laughs> yeah. chair. You guys are in the... I love it. Um, I'm like, this is what Josh feels like. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, there is actually one thought that has been going through my mind is there have been more times than I can think to remember that you said something and I've thought that's really profound and then I've forgotten it (laughs) yeah and then sometimes when I've been nodding and looking at you I've been trying to remember what that thing is and this is working memory right it's Mm -hmm. like it's the one thing that's so challenging sometimes and it affects me as a therapist sometimes I have to try and you know I might I actually now start to take notes Mm -hmm. in sessions Mm -hmm. because I realize I'm missing something really important that they're saying it's really um against the convention of what we're taught as well absolutely it was never, it was actually, never but actually that's an example of how yeah you know our training has issues with he, he, absolutely and I used to feel very like I wasn't getting it as a therapist off when actually it's a working memory issue of this is interesting because when I um was editing the first interview um with Sarah um I was listening I was like oh that was the <laughs> oh that was the and I was like why did but but you know what it was what it was yeah. I think there's a part of me that has to accept I'm not going to remember things that resonates with me so much because I'm a journalist so I have these interviews too and I find that if I'm not 
writing down, you know, questions that I want to come back to as I go. Like, I can't just wing it, even though sometimes I'm overconfident and think I can. Mm. Um, and I really appreciate you saying that because so often that's what's going on for me in, in everyday conversations and professional work. And it feels like a hard thing to say. Like, there is something I wanted to come back to and it's gone. What happens for me is then you're not, you're then not present yeah. with the person. Mm-hmm. And if you're that, just that, desperately trying to get back there. You're desperately trying to. And I think that's a lifelong thing, right? Of, yeah. And maybe that's part of the reason why I, I didn't actually want to write here because I wanted the conversation to be as free flowing as possible. Um, and I think that's also the challenge of being a therapist sometimes that I realised that I could mm. become hyper-focused on note-taking yeah. and almost forget that they're telling, they're saying something that's really important and I need to be looking at them yeah. and not looking at what I'm writing. And I think that's the the balancing act for me. And I haven't, I definitely haven't got that yet. And for some clients, interesting, some clients I don't think I feel like I need to. Mm-hmm. There are some clients that I do and it's not necessarily anything to say about that client. It might just be yeah. how I am, you know, um, but yeah, so thank you for asking that. Um, Thanks for saying it. I think it, that, particularly with respect to therapy, is so important to talk mm. about. And we could have a whole other conversation about that. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks so, you so much, Alex. To get in touch with Carly and check out some of her most recent journalistic work, you can visit her website, carlyminsky.com. My guest on the next episode is Stefan Vigiani, an assistant principal of a girls' secondary school in southwest London. I'll be chatting with him alongside his eldest son, who also has ADHD, and his youngest son, who doesn't have ADHD. It's going to be a great chat, so keep an eye out for that one. You can follow this podcast and all updates on future episodes on Instagram at ADHDpodcast.fm and Twitter at ADHDpodcast underscore FM. The show was hosted and produced by me, Alex Campbell, and the interview took place in Josh's wonderful therapy room in North London. All audio editing and theme music was created by the incredible composer, Andrew Swarbrick. And finally, to all the ADHDs and those around them, remember, each one of us is different. But one thing that is true, each one of us is wonderfully made. And so, my friend, are you. Until next time.